Hello and welcome to this fifth episode of Pain TV. My name is Perry Fine, Professor of Anesthesiology and Attending Physician at the Pain Management Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and your host to this series of programs focusing on managing chronic pain in primary care. Chronic non-cancer pain, whatever its cause, is a disease in its own right. It requires appropriate treatment that reaches beyond symptoms and etiology to target the pathophysiologies and mechanisms responsible for the patient's pain. Here to discuss one of the most common forms of chronic non-cancer pain, back pain, is my colleague, Dr. James Rathmel, director of the Center for Pain Medicine in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also a professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. What is low back pain? It's a nonspecific term that describes pain centered over the middle of the lower back, the lumbosacral region. In fact, low back pain is the fifth most common reason for all physician visits in the United States. In one national survey, about 25% of adults reported having low back pain that lasted at least one whole day in the past three months. As for chronic back pain, up to one-third of patients report back pain one year after an acute episode, and one in five report substantial limitations in activity. Although spinal pain can occur in any part of the spine from the neck to the sacrum, lumbosacral pain is by far the most common sight seen in primary care. Lumbar spinal pain occurs in the region from L1 to L5, while sacral spinal pain occurs lower beneath the sacral spinous process and above the sacrococcygeal joint. Lumbosacral spinal pain originates in either or both of these regions, and it's what we commonly call low back pain. In contrast, radicular pain is referred pain that originates from compression or irritation of a spinal nerve and radiates down the leg in the distribution of a single dermatome that corresponds to sensory innervation of the affected spinal nerve. Patients present with what we commonly call sciatica, pain in the leg within the distribution of the sciatic nerve and patients may think there's something wrong with their leg, not their back. Lower back pain is generally considered chronic when it's gone on for more than three months. Acute pain resolves in less than one month, subacute pain in one to three months. There's no hard and fast rule, but these are generally accepted guides to distinguish acute from chronic pain. Based on patient history and physical examination, patients with low back pain generally fall into one of three broad diagnostic categories. Non-specific low back pain, back pain associated with radiculopathy or spinal stenosis, or back pain associated with another specific cause. In general, it's not necessary to obtain imaging or other diagnostic studies in patients with nonspecific low back pain. The in-office diagnostic workup helps to determine the cause and the type of the patient's back pain. However, diagnostic imaging is indicated for patients with low back pain when severe or progressive neurologic deficits are present, or when serious underlying conditions are suspected on the basis of history and physical examination. Even in patients with chronic low back pain and signs of symptoms of radiculopathy or spinal stenosis, MRI is only necessary if the patient is a candidate for surgery or epidural steroid injections. In a minority of patients, initial evaluation of low back pain reveals specific disorders. These range from spinal conditions to cancer. However, in primary care practice, the vast majority of patients, more than 85%, will have nonspecific back pain, and labeling such patients with specific anatomical diagnoses does not appear to improve their outcomes. If no conditions raising red flags are present, 
Diagnosis and treatment depend on the location and the duration of symptoms. Recognition of risk is simple and it helps with diagnostic workup. Easily identifiable risk factors for developing chronic low back pain include older age, female sex, low socioeconomic status and lower education level, higher body mass index, tobacco use, lower perceived general health status, physical activity like bending, lifting, and twisting, repetitive tasks, job dissatisfaction, depression, spinal anatomic variations, and abnormalities on imaging studies. An understanding of spinal anatomy is key to managing patients with low back pain. Although no two patients are alike, the guiding principle is simple. Treatment must be individualized to match the type and cause of the patient's low back pain. Picture here is a segment of an anatomically normal lumbar spine, L4 to L5. It's composed of two adjacent vertebral bodies with two posterior facet joints, an intervertebral disc, and the surrounding ligamentous structures. The majority of symptomatic disc herniations with back and leg pain occur at the L4-5 or the L5-S1 levels when a prolapsed disc causes compression or irritation of a spinal nerve. This is a superior view of the normal spinal anatomy. The spinal nerves, the spinal canal, the cauda equina, and the nucleus pulposus. When the nucleus pulposus, the gelatinous central portion of the disc, ruptures through the outer annulus fibrosis, it can cause acute radicular pain, pain down the leg in the sciatic distribution. The intervertebral discs absorb vibrational forces and act as load distributors. But repetitive stress, lifting, bending, and twisting, makes them increasingly vulnerable to injury over time. As our patients age, they'll often present with pain and disability due to progressive degenerative changes of the spine. In the early stages of degenerative disc disease, the gelatinous material in the center of the disc, the nucleus pulposus, starts to lose water content and the space between the discs begins to narrow. As shown here, tears in the outer annulus fibrosis allow the nucleus pulposus to bulge into the annulus. In patients with acute disc herniations, nuclear material can extend through a fissure in the annulus and beyond in the form of an acute disc herniation. In others, the nuclear material will remain contained within the annulus fibrosis, but weakening of the annulus can cause a bulging of the disc margin. Disc herniation and disc bulges can cause irritation of the adjacent spinal nerve, causing inflammation and radicular pain. With aging, the degenerative process continues. The advanced degenerative changes illustrated here culminate in complete atrophy and collapse of the nucleus pulposus. Osteophyte formation and thickening of the ligaments within the spinal canal can cause narrowing of the central spinal canal called spinal stenosis, and narrowing of the opening through which the spinal nerves traverse foraminal stenosis. Central canal stenosis results from the combined effects of facet hypertrophy and thickening of the ligamentum flavum and the posterior longitudinal ligament. Patients with central canal stenosis may experience neurogenic claudication, feelings of pain, weakness, and heaviness in the legs, and walking even short distances becomes progressively more difficult as the spinal canal narrows. Progressive degeneration of the discs or facets can also lead to narrowing of the intervertebral foramina and radicular pain occurs when facet hypertrophy causes stenosis of the lateral recess of the spinal canal and the foramina. Treatment of chronic non-cancer pain, whatever the cause, must be individualized based on the type of pain. 
the underlying pathophysiologic mechanisms, and the accompanying biopsychosocial factors. Disease-specific guidelines are available for many of the chronic pain syndromes seen clinically. Chronic low back pain is an excellent example of chronic non-cancer pain because different back conditions are associated with different types of pain that require different treatment approaches. Since mixed mechanisms of pain, both nociceptive and neuropathic, may coexist in the same patient, in some cases multiple approaches may be required to target each mechanism and to achieve additive effects. It's important to keep in mind that in the majority of cases, it's impossible to pinpoint the exact anatomical cause of the patient's pain. Let's now consider three patient cases with chronic low back pain. Hector, the 42-year-old patient featured in episode three, typifies the patient with nonspecific back pain commonly seen in primary care. Nothing in his history or physical exam explains the severity of his pain. He's out of shape, his muscles are weak and in spasm. His work demands heavy lifting and continually re-injures himself, stressing and straining the ligaments in his back due to his weak core muscles. What approach will relieve his pain? Numerous pharmacologic agents are available to treat the various types of lower back pain. Bear in mind that there is no consensus on the order in which these therapies should be initiated for chronic low back pain. However, it's important to choose from among medications with proven benefits based on assessment of baseline pain and functional deficits and to think carefully about the risk-benefit ratio. Some interventional forms of pain therapy are available, but these will be covered in an upcoming episode, so I'll limit my recommendations here to medical therapy. Hector's prescribed a muscle relaxant to target the nociceptive and the inflammatory pain arising from injury to soft tissues, the muscles and the ligaments. For acute exacerbations, he's initially advised to take acetaminophen or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agent like ibuprofen. The use of opioids is reserved for second-line use. Barbara, an active 45-year-old third-grade teacher with a history of back pain dating back 20 years, she's on her feet all day in the classroom. She describes her pain as deep ache in her lower back with near constant excruciating radiation of the pain to her left leg. She's had prior lumbar discectomy many years ago and the constant pain in her left leg has been present since the time of that prior surgery. Her x-ray reveals bone spurs characteristic of osteoarthritis and her MRI reveals the site of the prior discectomy at the L5-S1 level, but there's no evidence that there's present nerve root involvement. She's also had EMG and NCV studies that show chronic nerve injury. She has chronic radiculopathy at the L5-S1 level. Barbara has mixed inflammatory and neuropathic pain, pain over the lumbosacral junction and radicular pain that coexist. Osteoarthritis and disc disease with nerve injury that dates back to prior to her previous lumbar surgery. Patients with chronic radicular pain like Barbara's have much in common with patients with other injuries and initial treatment should consist of pharmacologic treatment for neuropathic pain. So she could be prescribed a tricyclic antidepressant, a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, or an anticonvulsant. Since she reports that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug she's been using for arthritis is ineffective, she's also started on an alternative non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug. Charlotte is a thin, athletic, 55-year-old woman, a former dancer and current runner. Her MRI reveals advanced degenerative changes of the lumbar spine. Her MRI shows moderate spinal stenosis with neuroforaminal narrowing and multi-level degenerative disc disease. Charlotte presented to her primary care physician with functional deficits in gait and symptoms suggestive of neurogenic claudication. 
prompting the imaging studies we just discussed. This patient's complex case of multiple comorbidities should be managed by or in consultation with a spine specialist, as it requires a multidisciplinary approach. In the interim, she can be started on a selective norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor, a tricyclic antidepressant, or an anticonvulsant to manage her neuropathic symptoms. There's no immediate urgency for this referral as the severity, location, and the pattern of her pain has been unchanged for many years. The evaluation and treatment of patients with chronic non-cancer pain is guided by the specific features they report and the findings on physical examination. Low back pain is an excellent example. Patients with recent onset of pain and new findings on physical examination deserve close attention. They'll often need further diagnostic evaluation. Treatment of those with pain that's persisted for longer periods of time, more than three to six months, where initial diagnostic studies have been unrevealing, should be selected based on the characteristics of their pain. Those with signs and symptoms of nerve injury, like burning, lancinating pain, or pain to light touch, should receive agents aimed at treatment of neuropathic pain. Those with localized pain and muscle spasm should be treated with agents aimed at these symptoms, including non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and muscle relaxants. Primary care physicians are ideally positioned to educate patients about the importance of self-management and to work with them to develop treatment plans for effective control of their back pain. We hope you found this CME program informative and useful. In the last two episodes, we've reviewed underlying mechanisms for chronic low back pain and neuropathic pain syndromes, like painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy and post-herpetic neuralgia, and discussed treatment options that may alleviate the pain in those conditions. In the next episode, Dr. Glenn Treisman will continue the discussion on pain treatment by taking a look at selecting appropriate pain treatments based not only on the type of pain, but to the patient as a whole, considering biopsychosocial factors that may influence treatment outcomes. To proceed to the online CME test, click on the Earn CME Credit link on this page. Please also take a moment to complete a few post-assessment questions to help us measure the educational impact of this activity. We hope you'll check back to view future episodes of Pain TV. Thank you for watching this program.